0: I've been very lucky in that Dad got a debenture for the stadium in 2007. So for the last 15 years, I've been to Wembley, which is just down the road, quite a few times. Uh, I did send an email to the FA contact and said, can you get me a media pass for the 2016 final? She went, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, the more the merrier. So I was in the press box for Arsenal's 2016 win and Manchester City's 2017 win. They were not classics, either of them, but they were respectively the second and third Women's FA Cup Finals at the new Wembley Stadium. Uh, Chelsea beating Notts County in 2015 in 2015, and Chelsea beating Arsenal in front of 45,000 fans in 2018. Was there a moment when you and Tom looked at Wembley Stadium in 2018, kids had gone in free, and you thought, wow, wow. We can only go up from here.
1: I, I just, I just feel like it's. I mean, it's just amazing to see it now. The first one I worked on was 2003 at Selhurst Park, um, and Fulham beat Charlton three nil. And it was a it was a dank and grey Bank Holiday Monday. It was live on BBC Two, I think, that year, maybe BBC One. There was about ten thousand there, and it meant a lot to the players. It wasn't it wasn't a great game. Um, Charlton scored two own goals. Ooh. But again, it was a passion that caught me that, that obviously this means just as much to those players on the pitch as if we were covering the men's FA Cup final. In some ways, it mirrors men's football because the only game that used to be televised was the men's FA Cup final. Um, and then the kind of game grew out, wider coverage kind of grew out of that fascination with Cup final day. And back in 2003, the only game you would see on TV was the women's FA Cup final. And I didn't think then that we would have what we have now, which is, as you say, huge crowds at Wembley. And they'll get bigger. I mean, Steph Horson wrote one of the forwards to the book, and she is confident that it won't be long before we're selling out Wembley for the Women's FA Cup final, and I really do agree with her. But yeah, I mean, in the book as well, there's quotes from Vic Akers, who you've mentioned, the, the manager who won 10 Women's FA Cups with Arsenal. That's a record. And from Keith Boanis, who was the Charlton manager, won it once and runner-up twice and they were saying in the mid-2000s 2007 when Arsenal won the quadruple and they beat Charlton 4-1 in the FA Cup final at the City ground Nottingham they got 27,000 and they were saying look you play the FA Vars and the FA Trophy at Wembley with fewer people than that so your argument that you're not going to get big enough crowds doesn't stack up and for many years before that, other people in the game was, were saying well, this should be at Wembley, and it took the FA a very, very, very long time. But when they finally got around to it in 2015, that is the making of it. That is, that is what has brought the Women's FA Cup to the level that it is now because it puts it on a par, because in the consciousness of, of my generation who grew up where the FA Cup is so special, suddenly go, oh, wow, there's a Women's FA Cup too. Well, blimey, we can, have, we can get tickets? Wow. Um, and obviously, they're going to take their kids along. And that's a, that's a brilliant thing. I mean, obviously, as the game grows in popularity, it becomes harder to get tickets. But, you know, I think we're, we're a little way off of that. But it's, it's giving it that respect and parity that it deserves. That suddenly, people go, well, yeah, this is a national event. This is a showpiece event at Wembley, live on BBC One. I want to go and see what happens. And, you know, like you say, actually, sadly, I think actually... 2015 wasn't a great game but it was historic for being there 2016 as you you were there it wasn't a great game but brilliant goal from Daniel Carter
0: super super goal
1: I think actually underrated Uh, and uh, the following year well Man City beat Birmingham 4-1 didn't they probably well 2018 3-1 Chelsea against Arsenal I was going to say probably the best but actually the best was obviously last year when sadly no one was there um, because of Covid and Everton pushed Man City to extra time Back in November 2020. Um, Sandy McKeever put in an extraordinary performance in goal for Everton, and uh, Man City eventually proved too strong with those two goals in extra time to win 3 1. But I think that was the best Wembley final that we have seen. But again, you know, that, that goes back to my other point that, you know, we, you often don't get a great cup final. That is the same in men's football. Cup finals always, often let you down. But You still remember those standout moments. I mean, Liverpool Man United men in '96, terrible game. But I can see in my mind's eye right now, Eric Cantona scoring that winner.
0: That's the reason I followed Man United. I think if Liverpool had won that game, I'd be a Liverpool fan. Yeah, now 25 years on, I still remember that goal.
1: Exactly. You fall in love with the game from seeing these moments, right? And if those moments are hidden away and you don't see them, then you don't even know that women play football. And that's what my generation's battling with because we didn't grow up even thinking that it was a game for women. So therefore it does feel alien to a lot of men to see it. And it, you know, and there are, there is still that, like, oh, what, what, why, why would I want to watch that? You know, this, this is a man sport. Or we've only ever seen men play it. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of, I get why there's a bit of a barrier there. And I don't think, I don't, I, you know, I do think you need to allow people to discover stuff for themselves I'm not sure it's always great to be telling people or shaming people. Obviously there is a lot of stuff that is blatantly sexist that needs to be, you know, needs to be called out, but there is also, there's also people wanting to educate themselves about a game and, and fearful of saying anything that might, that might offend or be misconstrued. But that is a lot easier for me to say as a man than as a woman, because I've not obviously not been on the, on the receiving end of a lot of the hostility and abuse that is out there. So it's a strange area that side of it, but um, yeah. To me, I kind of discovered it myself in the end. I questioned myself, like, why haven't I watched women's football? And then, obviously, there's just so much there. If anything, it's kind of becoming more fascinating to me now because because you've got this overarching inspiration of what what every woman even now has had to go through just to get to this level. I mean, that is that's you talk about great stories. I mean, that what is not inspiring about that? If anything, there should be more. There should be more, and there will be, more books about but, um, women's sport because it's another level which we've we've just cast off as men. We're like, oh, yeah, well, OK, they've got to overcome a bit of that. You know, it's like,
0: yeah.
1: it's so easy for us to just go, yeah, well, you know, get over it.
0: Well, if, um, if Chelsea beat Barcelona on Sunday, who never lose, um, we're going to have a week of Emma Hayes, Emma Hayes, Emma Hayes. And, of course, if Chelsea do win the FA Cup, the Men's FA Cup final on Saturday against Brendan Rodgers. It's going to make things very interesting with Chelsea. Uh, I will talk more to Tom Garry about women's football, and that will go out in June. We'll take a, a long view uh, of football, but you can read a history of the women's FA Cup final, now published by the History Press, uh, Chris Slag and Patricia Gregory. Why do you have a love for the lane?
1: Yeah, a love for the lane. So that I wrote back in 2017, you know, supported Tottenham, all my life, started going to games in the early 90s.
0: Ooh, and
1: um, it came yeah. to it that Tottenham were going to be leaving White Hart Lane to move into their beautiful new stadium. Although I would I would personally still prefer just to be a White Hart Lane, to be honest, because I think you have an affinity for the place that you grew up watching the game. And I was at the time writing another book, which was about my favourite Tottenham season, under Ozzy Ardiles and then Jerry Francis. And I started writing that. The season before Pochettino took over, it kind of shows how little Tottenham had to celebrate in most of my lifetime, that the um, the Klinsmann season was the one that stood out to me prior to Pochettino. Anyway, I was writing that book and I was meeting lots of frustrations with finding a publisher for that. So, and it suddenly occurred to me, well, hang on, look, there's this other thing that's about to happen. And I very, very quickly wrote that because I basically just stumbled upon the idea, well, try and find a... Find find the most significant, not the greatest matches, but the most significant matches that have ever taken place at White Hart Lane. And that's actually quite an easy thing to do because for significance, you know, it it needs to be winning a trophy. Well, Tottenham have only won the title twice. They've won the UEFA Cup at White Hart Lane, which is amazing. Not many clubs have won a European trophy on their own turf. Obviously, it was... It was more common back then because it was played over two legs home and away. And then there were other standout moments, like for me, Klinsman's debut and just the, the atmosphere there. So that was a, a significant game. Other ones were record-breaking moments. So our record um, league victory against Bristol Rovers 9-0 and beating Wigan 9-1 is a Premier League record. So I wanted to tell these stories where possible through the eyes of people who were there, which obviously was impossible for those kind of in the early 1900s and i think i've managed to find a journalist who was there when we won the league in 61 but more recently i was able to get hold of people like alan mullery mm-hmm. who um, was a captain when we won the uefa cup for the first time at Whitehall lane in 72 i was able to get hold of mickey hazard who played in the 84 uefa cup final darren anderson who played in klinsman's Debut.
0: Can I just stop you? With, with regard to Anderton, do you know this fact? I yeah. did a quiz the other day. The most Premier League appearances for Tottenham Hotspur. Sick note. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think that's still true. Yeah, it's it? still Although, true uh, maybe today. Maybe Harry Kane's, maybe Harry Kane's getting close. But yes, yeah, that's a that's a fact. You know, he he has a reputation for, and he, you know, he's actually, he's he's upset by that. He feels let down by. Um, a lack of care, I think, really. that he should have got better care at Tottenham. I think is how he feels. I'm sure the club would deny that. And he was a great player. I mean, I loved to watch him. a '96. He was uh, he was underrated. He, he got so much stick for England from fan, non-Tottenham fans. I think I really think he was underrated. And I'm grateful for him for talking to me. And so that was yeah. A lot for the lane was really just singing out the, the best games, the most significant games to take him place at that stadium and to me it's always such a special stadium I was gutted when we were going to leave and at one point it looked like Tottenham were going to go and move to the Olympic Stadium which I could not have tolerated I don't think I could have carried on supporting them I'm not from Tottenham but I feel the club should always be where it was born not not necessarily born because I know clubs have moved in the past and Tottenham played on um, Northumberland's uh, park, but at least in the local area. It's got to be in the local area. Mm-hmm. It would have been a, a travesty if Tottenham had been allowed to to move to Stratford, the Olympic Stadium. It would always be special to me and as I say, in some ways although financially if you forget about Covid and, and the harm that will have done to a club that's just spent a billion, close to a billion pounds on a new stadium although to compete with the very biggest teams Tottenham did need this new stadium, I would still prefer if we were playing in front of 36,000 at White Hart Lane
0: because we- that's those are the days, grew
1: up watching
0: it. Yeah, those are the days I remember well. Dad took us between about '97 and 2003. My brother was at the Judas game when Campbell played for Arsenal. I was at Whoa. two memorable games. One was where my friend Gavin was a mascot and it was 7-2. Stefan Everson scored a hat-trick against Ipswich. And the other game was when Spurs were 3-0 up at half-time on Dean Richards' debut and then something happened in the second half that... Um, Yeah, I
1: can't remember.
0: No one seems to remember. If only there were a Sky Sports football yearbook that could tell us. But yeah, I went into a shop in Shepherd's Bush. I've been doing a lot of book shopping recently. Um, And I saw the book, The Team That Dared to Do, which was written by Gerry Francis with Chris Sleg, who is you. Uh, It was the diary of a season. It was the 94-95 season, which Alex Ferguson wrote a diary of. Uh, One of my favourite books, A Year in the Life. Uh, And he says that Ozzy Ardiles and Mike Walker... Uh, were both sacked on around the same day. What is your view on Alan Lord Sugar of, is it barking?
1: Firstly, what I'm amazed by is that you found two of my books in bookshops. You must spend so much time in bookshops and so many different bookshops because I wasn't aware of the presence of either of those in bookshops. I'm fascinated to hear that. It makes me feel good. It's a tricky one with owners. It's like it's the internal it's the eternal and internal debate about what do you want from football. I mean, and we're having that now as, as anyone who follows any of these these big six, you know, Tottenham probably don't really have a right to be in that category based on what we win, but as a brand, and again, I don't like that expression, they are very much part of the big six. And I can't say that these owners of Tottenham's right now are terrible owners. I can't say that Alan Sugar was a terrible owner. You know, we've seen terrible owners in football who have run their clubs out of existence, people who are actually criminals. Yes. You know, Now, Alan Sugar was certainly not that, and neither are the people who run Tottenham now. They're businessmen, they're business people, and you probably do need that to run a club. And they're going to make unpopular decisions. Now, Alan Sugar was never going to spend millions, and Enoch, Daniel Levy under Joe Lewis, is never going to spend the sort of money that's going to allow Tottenham to realistically compete with Manchester City and Chelsea and Liverpool. But I don't know if you want that anyway, because, I, again, I don't know what I want from football. Right? I don't want to be like Man City or Chelsea. I don't want a Russian oligarch or a you know the richest, one of the richest families in the world to come and take over my club. Now, if it happened, I'd still support Tottenham. You know, I know Chelsea fans who preferred the old days. I know Man City fans who preferred the old days. Again, that's partly an age thing. It's partly because you feel like you, you want to strive to achieve. And I'm not dismissive of what, of what Man City are doing right now. Phenomenal players. Phenomenal manager. But again, they've got unlimited funds. Now, personally, I wouldn't want Tottenham to have unlimited funds and then just go and win the league. To me, it would feel like a bit of a shortcut. I was fascinated in what we were doing under Pochettino. And I think the owners got lucky with that manager. But I think he's an exceptional manager. You know, when we should have been finishing fifth or sixth, we were finishing second, third, and fourth. And had he won the Premier League, in fact, I, I would almost go as far as to say, as finishing second, as finishing second, third, and fourth, is as impressive as Ryan Harry winning the title with Leicester. Now, I know Leicester have are, are theoretically a smaller club.
0: Plucky little Leicester with their billionaire tie owners.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly, um, but but they are still, you know, still what they did. I wouldn't want to take away from that. That's amazing. But Tottenham were kind of having some sort of organic growth. And in fact, Chelsea were having that before Abramovich. Chelsea were probably the last club to do it until Tottenham did it in the Premier League, getting a little bit better each year and just on the verge of something. And they qualified for the Champions League, I think, Chelsea, just before, under Ranieri, just before um, Abramovich arrived that summer. And I'd always like to see what might have happened without Abramovich because they might have got there. Going back to the question of what did I make of Alan Sugar, I think he was probably less, probably less ambitious than the owners that we have now on a football front. I think he possibly had even more of a business head on and he did sell the club. He made money out of selling Tottenham. He made you know, Not, not a lot of people do that. I, get, I mean, it'd be easier now with one of these Huge clubs but but to take over a club and and kind of sell it on for a profit that's that's the you know that's a sign of success as a businessman i mean he he uh, he says he was stung by what happened with Klinsman and that after that that bit of ambition he showed that summer and he feels that Klinsman walked out on the club and that they had a gentleman's agreement. Klinsman would disagree with that didn't do anything wrong in his eyes. Sugar always said that that's why then he reigned in the spending and he didn't want to go and sign these great players from abroad. And if that's true, that's kind of a real shame from a Tottenham perspective, obviously, because we missed out on Dennis Bergkamp. Jerry Francis felt they were very close to being able to sign him. I wouldn't be heavily critical of Alan Sugar as Tottenham's owner, but neither do I think, as I don't think most football club owners have the interest really of the fans at their heart, They want to be finding a way to make money out of the club and in a way you've got to accept that as a fan if your club's going to be successful. I've always struggled with having strong opinions, actually. I always end up sitting on the fence. BBC,
0: very well trained.
1: Tottenham, maybe it's a history as well why why I fell in love with Tottenham. It's less about success, it's more about what the club stands for or stood for maybe and falling in love with a club through through the stories that are told. And it, and that brings me back to the women's book because I know we're not talking about that now, but again those stories hadn't been told. So how could you fall in love with the history of those clubs? But with Tottenham obviously when I was growing up, the history was incredible. You know
0: there always seemed to have been something in a year ending with one the year on the, club, one, yeah. the first club to win, first British club to
1: win a European trophy great players They're in a cup team I love cup football I know that the league is the ultimate test of success it really is you can't deny that winning a cup you could fluke your way through every round you could theoretically draw a lower league team in every round and win them all on penalties you know that's not a test of greatness but football fascinates me and it's a shame how the FA Cup has been devalued and it's a shame that European competitions are no longer straight knockout ties from the beginning I think they should be group group stage football, is there's a lot of dead matches. But Tottenham's Cup pedigree, it's part of the reason I fell in love with that club. I've never been... Again, you know, we see fans protesting about a lack of trophies sometimes. Well, trophies... I, I want the club to strive for trophies. I want the club to be competitive. I hate this idea of just settling for fourth. I hate this idea of not taking the FA Cup seriously. I hate the idea of not taking the League Cup seriously. I want the club to try to win everything. I want there to be glory in every game. see we know there isn't now. I don't mind if they don't win it. I don't mind. You know, I want them to be trying and I want them to be entertaining. I couldn't watch a team play terribly every week and, you know, I'm not sorry that Jose Mourinho's left. I, I can't I can't take much joy from his football. But yeah, the, the owners of Tottenham in my lifetime, I mean, I think like most football club owners, they're, they're more interested in running the club as a business but if you're a football club in the Premier League that is you know, probably the case I, I do think though that you can still you can still do that and not lose sight of how important fans are and not lose the soul of the club and I do think Tottenham have lost that very recently what's happened by trying to join the, big, the, the European Super League some of the decisions they've made throughout the pandemic which I know has not been easy for any industry and any owner but and, and trying to move the club to the Olympic Stadium. I mean, someone put on Twitter last night a, a guy called Kevin Hill. He's got I mean, nearly every Tottenham programme and every Tottenham handbook. He put Daniel Levy's first ever interview in the match programme, so that would have been 2001, 2001. Talking about he would never lose sight of the, the heart of the club and that he himself is a fan. And I feel that they have lost sight of the heart of the club. You know, I think... I know we can't blame them for the kick-off time, but the fact that 10,000 people will be welcomed back next week for the first game that so many have been able to see and it's going to kick off at six o'clock and tickets are £60 to play Aston Villa.
0: There's demand for it, but...
1: Oh, yeah, there'll be be 10,000 people there, don't get me wrong. This is why they can do it. For every season ticket holder who would say, look, I'm not not paying that, I'm going to... This is why protests very rarely work that they, they would have already done the calculations. They know that there'll be 10,000 people willing to pay 60 quid to be there at 6pm on a weeknight. Now, I can't even get there at that time on a weeknight. A lot of people can't because of work or childcare, let alone the ticket price, which to me, for a, what is no disrespect to Aston Villa, but Tottenham don't categorise that themselves. It's as not a, category a. a no. yeah. And for it to be £6 when people have had what they've had over the last year and a half, it's, to me, not, not a decision which says they understand no where fans are. Yeah, but I don't think that they're worse owners than Alan Sugar was. I I don't think he he was a terrible owner. I don't think we've ended up with worse owners. And, you know, you can't campaign for owners to sell up and move on. And I know that's not really what's happening at Tottenham. That's what's happening at Manchester United and at Liverpool. But you're not necessarily going to end up with anyone better, anything better. And there's very few people who are going to be able to afford these clubs now.
0: Yeah, there's only so many emirate states.
1: So it's hard to know where we're going with with elite football. And again, that is probably part of the reason I've turned towards women's football, because it feels more human. But like I say, we're we're already seeing there Manchester Manchester City and Chelsea, the very richest and therefore the most successful clubs.
0: Uh, Elite football for me is just a different kind of football. There are two kinds, the one we like and the one that... They play in they would love to play every game in Qatar. Spurs are going through another transition period. Uh, riddle me this: How is Joe Lewis, who is a billionaire, going to listen more to his fans on the board if there is a fan rep, or three fan reps than his own pocket? So we'll we'll monitor that, and then of course, there's the Tullingham Harspur team who are surely in the works to break into the NFL or the London hot Spurs. Uh, fortunately, David Lammy has the safest majority in Britain, so he's always kind of the super fan. Tottenham as a club, it's just... I, when Gareth Bale was at Spurs, I always said, this isn't my Tottenham. My Tottenham was Goran Bunjevshevich and Jose Dominguez. Your, your Tottenham would have been even before then. It would have been the... What was it like, actually? to return to the 94-95 book, Ozzy Ardiles' team played this weird kind of 0-5-5 formation. How exciting was it... To know that every game could end eight seven.
1: Well, this is this is why for me until Pochettino arrived, that was my favourite season. Like season, so I'd had the FA Cup win of nineteen ninety one, which is a uh, probably my favourite memory, or beating Arsenal in the semi final. Probably even our ranks the final, but as a season until Pochettino arrived, and that when you know, I was racking my brains for a Tottenham book to write. And that was the one that stood out because it was, and I, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of stick for the title of the team that dared to do. But what I, I mean, if anyone who does read the book, it's explained in there that we tried, we went out and we tried to win every game. I was going to call it the Famous Five, which you're right, Ozzy Ardelius was in charge at the start of the season. He'd had a dismal the year the year before. We'd nearly got relegated. We'd been docked 12 points for um, for kind of financial misdemeanours of the previous owners before um, Alan Sugar took over. So we started the following season, we started the Clinton season banned from the FA Cup and on minus 12 points. And Alan Sugar was not going to tolerate that. He fought the FA, so by the time the season kicked off, we were on minus six points. And actually later in the season, it, the, the ban was completely overturned and we were allowed back in the FA Cup. But in the meantime, maybe partly, well, Possibly a lot to do with the band because he knew we were on a hiding to nothing. He went out and he signed Klinsman, who'd had a brilliant World Cup in the USA. And he signed uh, Dumitrescu, who I thought was a magnificent player, who'd had a brilliant World Cup for Romania. And then Georgi Pipescu, his teammate, arrived about a month or two into the season. And we, under our dealies the reason I didn't call it the Famous Five is because when I looked into it, they only played together in about six or seven games. And so it didn't seem right to call it that. I started wanting to interview as many players who played that season and I wanted to interview the Ardelius. Sadly, he didn't want to be involved and I wanted to interview Jerry Francis who succeeded him after he, after um, Ardelius was sacked and Jerry had himself written a diary at the time which was almost turned into a book and so I was like, wow, I'd love to see that. Let's write a book together and I spent many afternoons down at Jerry Francis' house interviewing him about the season. Now, He's not, again, what counts against me is he's not... I mean, he was a brilliant player.
0: Played for England. Captain England. Yeah, and a great player for QPR and a very good manager.
1: He took QPR to 5th in the Premier League and he took Tottenham to 7th. Okay, Now, that is... People will say, well, that's not great, but this was a time when um, he was top London club with QPR and with Tottenham. And, And we finished above Arsenal. Now, Arsenal didn't have a good season, but it was another 25 years. It, was t- it wasn't It was until Pochettino arrived that we finished above Arsenal again. And what he did, he became known, unfortunately, as a very defensive coach. And that is why not every Tottenham fan remembers him all that fondly. But what he did in that season when he took over from um, Ardiles, and what a lot of the players told me is he got the balance spot on. The balance between attack and defence. He largely got on. So, we he he molded a team that that was laying in goals left, left right, and centre, and they we kept about seven clean sheets in a row, which was a club record. Um, but we was and we were still scoring and winning games, and and a lot of the players do feel he got it right that year. But then Klinsman left at the end of the season. Nicky Barmby, who was part of the famous five, was homesick and left for Middlesbrough, and suddenly we were in a situation where we didn't have two very good players, and the next season the players will say we did be, he did become Jerry Francis' two defences. But for that one season, every game was just incredible. So, you know, the scorelines in that season, there were four threes, there were four twos, there was 6-2 against Southampton in the FA Cup. There was a 6-3 against Watford in the League Cup, which was, I think, in the end, 8-6 eight, 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 on aggregate after the two legs. Uh, there was a 4-3 against Aston Villa, which I went which I, well, I, mean, I went to most games that season, most home games and the 4-3 against Aston Villa, we came back from 3 nil down and then lost in injury time. Dean Saunders scored. And it was just, oh, it was pain. I can still feel the pain now. Yeah. But every game felt like we're going to go out and we're going to try and win. And that's what I wanted to encapsulate in the book is, again, that debate about what, what do you want from football? What would you seek in it? Because to me, that season was it. That was it, you know. We're going to try and win everything. Now you look the team that dared to do. People read the title and go, "You finished seventh. You got knocked out of the league cup by Notts County three 0 who were in the division below, and you got Tonks four one by Everton in the FA Cup semi final." Yeah, that's that, and I agree. But that's why, even despite that, it was amazing. That season was just amazing yeah. you didn't know what was going to happen I think a lot of people would have said that Tottenham that year was kind of their second team which is very unusual you know Newcastle later in the decade became that very much so because of the football they were playing under Kevin Keegan but even even if you even if you weren't to go as far as embracing Tottenham as your second team everyone was talking about Tottenham because of Klinsman I mean and I wish in a way i have called the book Klinsmania because I think that's what it was about everyone was just mesmerised by this guy. I mean, he was a villain, right? He arrived here as a diver. We all knew him as a diver. I would agree he dived. I think that reputation counted against him at Tottenham because he quickly realised he wasn't going to get away with it. And I don't think he did do it at Tottenham. Maybe that's just my kind of short-sighted bias, but I don't feel he did it at Tottenham. He still got accused of it a bit, but people just um, took to him. The press took to him, opposition fans took to him because he, he was a brilliant player. And he was also he was poking fun at himself, you know, turning, making mm-hmm. a joke about diving in his first press conference and um, diving in that celebration in the first two games where he scored against Sheffield Wednesday away, and then in that game against Everton at home, which is to me that and when we left the farewell 2017 when we left White Hart Lane, I think my favourite Tottenham memory was Klinsmann's goal um, because. I usually sat in the North Stand at that time.
0: Oh, hardcore. I was West Upper, not hardcore.
1: Okay. So for some reason, I can't remember why, I was in the East Upper and I just had the most perfect view of Anderson whipping this crossing and you could just tell what Clinsman was going to do. It was headed back by Nevercott, I think, or Sheringham. I think it was headed back by Nevercott and then it hit Sheringham and went up in the air and you could just tell, oh my God, he's going to try this. I mean, it was probably the first time I'd ever seen an overhead kick in at a game live. And it was just uh, magical to see that goal. And then the fact that every single player celebrated. Uh, Ian Walker came running out of goal three-quarters of the length of the pitch to do a dive. <laughs> you know, Most of the time the players did a dive and all ended up in a heap. It just had this brilliant, brilliant, World Cup winner, he'd won it in nineteen ninety at our club scoring goals like that and just the team spirit just felt so special. And and so after that season, we won the League Cup in ninety nine and we'd we'd won it in two thousand and eight, but they weren't great seasons and so it got to like twenty fourteen and I was like, you know what well, that was the best season of my and it was probably partly my age as well and going to nearly every game. And I thought I'm gonna write this in a book because It meant something to me, and it probably meant something to fans and my generation. And I'm so grateful to so many of the players who shared their memories with me, Darren Anderton, David Howes, Jerry Francis, the manager, Teddy Sheringham. Jerry got me in touch with Jürgen, who was back in America by that point. He spared about an hour on the phone with me, and I'm so grateful to him for that. Dean Austin, who was the right back. I wasn't able to get hold of Justin Edinburgh, God rest his, mm-hmm. his soul because obviously very sadly he passed away a couple of years ago, very young, had a heart attack but he was the left back. Um, and I couldn't track him down. I even interviewed Sol Campbell and again I think this has put some Tottenham fans off the book. But I wanted to know what his memories were obviously when he left and they upset every Tottenham fan including me, the way that he left and he went on to have so much success in another part of London. But I wanted to know what that season meant to him and it meant a lot it really did did
0: he make his debut that season?
1: no so he he made his debut I think probably in 93 oh maybe even even 92 I was at the game where he made his debut because he came on up front I think it was against Chelsea and scored in injury time but we still lost 2-1 and he played some of his earliest games up front but yeah that that season 94-95 he was very much coming into his own as a a very good defender Mm -hmm. and it meant a lot to him Um, it really did and winning the League Cup with Tottenham in 1999, when I think he was captain, meant a lot to him. He doesn't begrudge what he learned at Tottenham, you know, and, and how much the club played a role in his development. So I just wanted to bring together a book about my favourite season. But it was weird that, as little did I know, that kind of at of the time I was writing that, Pochettino was taking over, and since then the, the best years of my Tottenham supporting. Life had been under Pochettino again. We didn't win anything, but probably my favourites on the memory now. And I was there in a professional capacity, so I wasn't able to completely let go. I was in the press box, but beating Ajax three two. Oh, why wow, the
0: Lucas Moura game?
1: Yeah, I mean that was literally wow, jaw dropping. My jaw, and I, now I understand where that expression comes from because my jaw dropped. I couldn't, I couldn't take it in. Um, and the cameraman I was working with, because I was there for BBC London, was also a Tottenham fan, and he was sat a few rows back in the press box. And obviously, you can't cheer, you can't jump up and down, or go crazy in a press box. It's, it's not what you do. But I just looked round at him, and he, like me, was just like open now, like, "Oh my <laughs> word!" And it, it's weird because obviously, by that point, I had my scripts ready and my questions in my head of this kind of brave defeat in, in the end because we were about to lose 3-2 on aggregate. And then Lucas Moura scores in the fifth minute of injury time, and we've won on away goals. And we're in the Champions League final. And, you know, I'd never imagined seeing Tottenham in the Champions League final. And, you know, the the final itself, complete anti-climax.
0: Now, I was telling my brother was at the stadium watching it on the video. I said, well, it was good for 45 seconds, or was it 34 yeah. And then uh, that was I'll it. Be- it was a terrible, terrible game. But because it's similar to what I had with Watford, I went to the playoff final in 2013, but our final had been the semi final. Likewise, I didn't even go to the FA Cup final a couple of years ago when we lost 28 0 to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> the semi final is always the fun game. So, which brings us back round uh, to December, because December is going to be when I guess you're going to put together an updated version of this book, The History of the Women's FA Cup, because it will be final number 51. Uh, if Emma Hayes takes Chelsea, and we're talking before the Champions League final, to the quadruple, will she resign?
1: I don't think she'd resign, no. But I think, I think it would make it uh, easier for another club to entice her away. Whether that's a club from abroad. I don't, I don't see where else she would go in England other than into the men's game. Mm-hmm. And I think she will be the first woman manager to go into the men's game at a top level. Whether that will be straight into the Premier League or whether it will be into the Championship. Spurs
0: don't have a manager yet.
1: No, but they're not going to appoint her. I mean, that's you know, it's not going to happen right now. A Premier League, and she's a Tottenham fan, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it's not. This is this is again part of the problem. In that I kind of understand it. Like, can you imagine you? In some ways, it's completely unfair. But can you imagine the spotlight that's going to be on a woman when they become a manager? of a men's club. I mean, I've been interviewing Mary Phillip recently, who manages Peckham town men in the 11th tier of English football. And she became the first woman in this country to lead a senior men's team to a trophy just last year. She led them to the London senior trophy. And that's a brilliant achievement. And she faces barriers. She faces, she's massively welcome at Peckham and among many opponents, but there are some who, who are still sexist towards her and kind of, Say to her, to her face, you don't know what you're doing, you're a woman. She experiences that in the 11th year of women's football. Can you imagine the spotlight that there will be the first time a woman takes over... Well, it'll be M7 fine ball. because
0: Twitter and Facebook and Instagram will have cut out all the racism. Enough is enough. And <laughs> but unicorns but will be... fly over a blue moon. Now, Emma Hayes can handle it. Right? Yeah, Emma for sure. It. But, it's the kid that but she's a mum as well, but, so she doesn't need the stress. But the
1: distraction, the distraction that there would be... To, I mean, think how much pressure and how much chat there is about every manager's future anyway, right? Can you imagine the, the distraction that that will be? Now, I'm not saying that's a fair reason not to give a woman a job, but you can see why, uh, even if you just look at her skill, that a club like Tottenham right now is going to go, well, we're on a hiding to nothing here, because the minute something goes wrong, you know, three games without a win, any manager in the Premier League is under pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine you're a woman as well. So you've got that extra level of hostility, Um, So I don't see that a Premier League club is going to be, certainly not one of those top, top Premier League clubs is going to be brave enough. And I can understand it to appoint a woman. But I can imagine, I mean, AFC Wimbledon, there was that kind of unconfirmed report that they were interested in appointing her this season. And she said that they wouldn't be able to afford her. She then said what she meant was no money in the world could take her away from the job she's doing at Chelsea. I could see a club bigger than ASC Wimbledon, but smaller than the Premier League elite, being the first club to have a female manager and her being it. You know, whether that's a club in, the, probably I would say in the upper reaches of the championship, rather than the lower reaches of the Premier League. Because I think for her too, she'd want to go somewhere where she could be on the up, rather than somewhere fighting mm-hmm. to stay in the Premier League well
0: she's only managed she's like the Guardiola of the women's game she's only managed oh. at and only oh, she managed in the States for a bit but, okay.
1: well she was assistant under Vic Akers at Arsenal but yeah her, her only managerial job is which is nine years Chelsea, at Chelsea
0: she's, yeah. Had,
1: yeah. she's had the benefit of time there and she agrees with that you know she's built something that is so special she's built her own team and yes she's had the support of one of the most forward thinking clubs and one of the richest clubs in, in, in the women's game woman CEO she by is. the way
0: Skyer at City which probably tells uh, you which probably helps
1: yeah and, and you're right she did have a short spell as Chicago Red Stars she was manager there mm. she's built this team and this team is now possibly going to be you know the best in Europe on Sunday and certainly the best in England right now so I don't think she'll walk away from that until something even better comes along it's hard to think what that would be in the women's game because Arsenal are in transition mm. they're not they're not as well-placed as Chelsea. Uh, Manchester United, well, Casey Stoney has surprised everyone by leaving today. The Tom Gary
0: exclusive?
1: Tom Gary exclusive, yeah, co authored the Women's Football Year, mm. but breaking an exclusive there, is He's a brilliant journalist that he is. But it's hard to imagine that everything's quite right at Manchester United if Casey Stone has walked away. Um, and you can't see Emma Hayes going to Manchester City. I can't really. So, where does she go in the women's game? And even where does she go in europe if she's avowed to make chelsea you know the best club in in europe then does she it doesn't speak feel French? Like it.
0: does she speak german spanish
1: well yeah swedish but I mean, you'd have said yeah you could have said two or three years ago go to go to germany or or france but i don't think that would be a step up now because of what she's done with chelsea so it's hard to see how she grows within the women's game right now england have obviously just appointed a new manager and and i, I think that's something in the long term But I don't think that would be for her right now because she obviously loves being in the club game. So yeah, it's 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 very it's yeah it's hard to know where she can how she can. I think she'll be at Chelsea racking up more and more trophies. Yep,
0: I think so too. I will ask. I'll ask Tom what he thinks because I'm talking to Tom tomorrow. I was going to talk to him before you, uh, but he decided to break the exclusive, and I said I think you'd rather work on yeah. that than talk to me about the women's football yearbook that you wrote with Chris Sleg who has collaborated yeah, with not. Patricia Gregory on a history of the women's FA Cup final what's the next book going to be
1: oh, oh dear. yeah I don't know I've got a lot of ideas a lot of ideas it's very very hard I've learned a lot in this process is it's not enough to have a good idea it's en- you, you've got to find something a publisher wants to publish obviously which is very very hard I mean also, what anyone will tell you, and you'll know, you'll know. I mean, you, the the podcast you're doing, you'll you'll know even more than me. But sadly, writing the book is probably ten percent of the challenge.
0: Which mm-hmm.
1: naively, I didn't realize when I set out on this. It's it's the smallest part of the yeah whole writing's point. the easy bit. Yeah, the, the the smallest part of the whole process is like the endless amount of time that has to go into everything else. Finding a publisher, trying to convince books to stock it. Um, Trying to get permissions for everything you need in the book, trying to publicize it. You need other people to buy into an idea. You know, I'm very grateful to Pitch Publishing for publishing the team that dared to do. I'm I'm not even, even greater respect to them. I don't think they necessarily entirely bought into the idea of it, but enough, obviously, to publish it. So I'm so grateful. But you really what you really want is an idea is just too good and the right publisher. So obviously that's a challenge. Even getting to the right publisher. Getting your ideas in front of publishers is just almost impossible. So you, you need to find the right publisher or the right agent with an idea that just like that they just get that they just want, they are just hungry to help you bring into the world. Um, so I've got four or five ideas I feel I'm really 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 good but that's not enough and I can't I can't I don't have the luxury of wasting time it's not a waste because every book if it means something to you it's worth doing but you, you will waste a lot of your time if, if and I think it's I think it's fine to do that on the first few books because like I say just getting something out there is so important and it gives you the confidence that everything you do is a learning process every word. That you get on that page is a learning process. But I probably don't want to waste time. And I have less of it now with two kids uh, than I did when I started all of this with none. So I want to make sure that the, the next idea is one that is... And I think this one, the Women's FA Cup final, is the first one where the publishers really got it. But the history press really thought, wow, this is... Yeah, this is special. It's not been done before. So, yeah, I, I, probably won't, I, won't, I probably won't enlighten you too much on the other ideas I have because I don't want to jinx myself. Well, please don't because uh, I'm
0: going to have to have you in again um, for oh, the yeah, next book. For, what is it? A, a book a year now, you average, which is scary, especially if you've got two well, children yeah, around. I
1: mean, obviously, the Women's Football Yearbook isn't like, you know, it's not a written book as such. It's a hell of a lot of work. There is obviously... There's writing in there. There's inspirational stories in there. It's more. Of, it's more of a reference book. In some ways, it's even harder than Narrative. the written book. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we are the authors of that book. I tend. Tom does most of the writing in that, and I do most of the um, st- statistical stuff, and some of the writing. But I guess I don't feel as such that I'm writing a book there in the way that I have done with uh, those two Tottenham books which were very much written books. And I think the history of the women's FA Cup final is is more of a mixture. It's it's more of a mixture of writing and research than the um, women's football yearbooks. And maybe I haven't got the balance right on the women's football yearbooks. Maybe there does need to be more colour and more inspiration and less less statistical stuff in there. That's something I'm thinking through as well. But yeah, I, I want the next book outside of the women's football yearbook kind of project... I want the next book to be a, a written book. It will be about sport and it will be, I hope, inspirational. But yeah, there's a few different avenues and I, I kind of need to pursue which one is the most realistic to bring to life in a way that will have impact because I think everyone everyone wants their work to have an impact. And uh, it's kind of one thing, again, the, the Tottenham book I bought out is very niche. It's very specific. It's very much... The, not just Tottenham fans, or I, I think it would appeal to other fans. Legacy
0: fans, legacy fans. Yeah, I,
1: I think you know, it's a story about what football means to people, but it, it's very much about the season that meant everything to me. So really, it's going kind of to directly appeal to Tottenham fans of my age, which is a very niche, again, house-off to pitch for, for publishing it. Yeah. Um, but what I've realised is, obviously, if you want to make an impact, you need to appeal to a broader base than that. Um, so that is what I will be looking to do with with my next book.
0: Well, niche or broad, we welcome all books in the football library.
1: My throat is sore, I need to go and get a, a glass of water.
0: Please have um, a lie down, uh, because you've got to <laughs> be you've gotta be up to enjoy Sunday evening. All care. the very best. Pleasure to speak to you. First like library! First like Library.